Howdy, everybody. Uh, welcome to another BP Movie Journal. This one's going to be a brief one for a couple of reasons. Uh, uh, by the way, I'm David Bax. I'm Tyler Smith. Uh, I got to get used to that. Yeah. Um, I'm still still warming in up to this uh, being the guy who introduces the show. Uh, but it may, mainly, you're about to go see a movie as soon as we're done here. Yeah. Uh, and also, most of the things that we've seen, we're not entirely sure we can talk about. Right. It's weird. Okay. Because of the time of the year... I'm seeing a lot of movies that are like for your consideration type screenings. Right. Um, so I've seen a lot of stuff that isn't out yet, but when they have those invitations, those don't, they don't tell you what the embargo date is. Yeah. Whereas if I see someone, something for that's for press, I know because it's in the email, there's right. an embargo date of whatever. Um, so there's stuff that, you know, I'd love to talk about some of this stuff, but I don't feel comfortable talking about stuff that isn't, uh isn't out yet or isn't coming out in the next day or so uh so um i'm only i think we're each gonna just gonna talk about two movies yeah today um why don't you go first all right uh we going in chronological you can do whatever you want i'm gonna go chronologically but you can do whatever you want uh i will not so i will first say that i saw jc chander's most violent year okay which i thought was very very good occasionally great and there are great things about it. Oscar Isaac is turning into a really solid, dependable actor. And I, just, I don't say that like he used to not be, but just like it's, it's interesting how people like him can just emerge and just kind of explode. You mm-hmm. know? And not that he's exploded. I don't think like most people don't know who he is. But, you know, he shows up in Drive. Right. In a supporting role. And people are like, oh, who's that guy? That's interesting. And then, of course, inside Lewin Davis, where right. he's, and he's wonderful in that. He was great in this, and he's getting some some notice for this. But then, of course, he's also, I believe, going to be in the next Star Wars movie. And then in the next X-Men, he will be playing the character Apocalypse, which is a very – that's a big deal. And it's interesting that he'll be playing that part. Which one's Apocalypse? Uh, wait, what do you, why? Do you sure. know the character? No, I'm asking because I don't know the character. Uh, Apocalypse is like a gal- he's he's like a s- several thousand year old like villain who like a vampire. Not really. Uh, I don't exactly remember what his mutant power is because he's. He, I think it's arguable. Sounds like he's it's like, being really. It's not dying. Well, among other things, he can also okay. grow to like a giant size, and he can uh, he has super strength and all that kind of thing. He is, I, I believe, some people said that the character is is the first mutant, um, but he also like he was around in the time of like the ancient Egyptians and that sort of thing, and and he has a theory of like only the strong survive and that sort of thing, and so he just tears through people and mutants looking for the strongest and that sort of thing. So, uh, oh, he's a villain. Oh, very much so. Okay. Yeah, and he is the villain. Like, if if in various comic book incarnations uh, of X Men and X Force and all that kind of thing, um, he he is the villain that it can unite Xavier and Magneto against him. Like, he's just one of those types okay. of of guys. And so, it's a it's what does he a, do for a living? Hmm? <laughs> do you ever wonder that? I uh, the thing that I always think about, and I know it's weird, is like. That guy has to go to the bathroom, you know? <laughs> now, I don't know if Apocalypse does have to go to the bathroom, but I do. It's weird to think of like, you know, it's not to, I don't want to go into detail, but just like the, the basic stuff that you have to do when you go to the bathroom, like washing your hands afterwards. I'll, I'll go with like the least dirty thing. Okay. Fact, the, the clean thing, which is like, you know, like uh, Magneto, like after he just 
goes steps up to a urinal and does everything. It's like, all right, I better wash my hands here. And does he use soap or does he just not give a shit? He's a villain. I just like, does he want people to know that he like not know that he's thousands of years old? Like I'm, I'm thinking about like a bank account. Like, does he every once in a while just have to close a bank account and open a new one somewhere else so that I think he doesn't so have a bank account that's been open for a hundred years? You know what? Hopefully the film gets into that. But, uh, and yeah, where does he live? Does he pay, does he pay property taxes? I think he lives off planet. I don't quite recall. I don't know. How he, is that possible? He really okay. came into prominence sort of after I stopped reading comics, but I still picked up things from time to time. Well, then where was he the whole time? He's clearly been around this whole time. Yeah. And then he decided to make himself known. I don't know. That that does seem like a like a thing where when a character shows up, it's like, hey, I came up with this character. We just wrote him in. And someone should say we should maybe do some retconning here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but for for Oscar Isaac to play that part is very is is very exciting, and and I think he's going to be he's, in in a couple of years. I think he will be very much household name. Okay, that kind of thing. So, so that's what you thought of him most violently. <laughs> sorry, yeah. It's, but uh, but his performance is is really wonderful and. Um, and it's it, the story is not at all what I thought it would be um, when I first when I heard like just the most basic blurb that sounded not remarkably interesting to me, but boy it sure is. It's it takes place in 1981 and he's this this character who runs like a heating oil company that he bought from his wife's father, and her father is basically a criminal and there's a lot of criminality happening in that industry, but he is trying to you know walk the righteous path even in the face of intimidation from his competitors and that sort of thing. And he's still nonetheless under investigation by like an assistant district attorney. Um, and so he's trying to do all this. And in the end, the film winds up being this really interesting idea of, uh, from a political standpoint that, uh, success in the U S is a blend of things. Like a lot of people will say, Oh, you just, if you just work hard, but that's not, you'd need a certain degree of luck as well. Um, but also it's, it's this blend of like working hard as far as the film goes, working hard, luck, and then opportunity, which falls into luck, but also it's a political thing. There's probably a fair amount of, uh, illegal stuff as well. Not, not like sometimes it's not even. Uh, it's just like, I'm not going to declare such and such on my taxes. I'm still going to pay taxes, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to declare this one thing, you know? And at this point I'm, I'm old enough that I know a lot of people who have small businesses and stuff like that. And even they say like, Oh, I, you know, I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not going to do that. And so it's just, so it almost makes this argument that like in this, in this country where people want to separate, separate like crime and politics and business and there's like this idea of like no they kind of all have to work together um you know it's oh, wow. it, in a way like uh it's sort of, sort of like the wire in that sense um and it's just a real so it's really complex uh i will say that script wise uh it's not important for for me personally it's not important that all the plots uh, that, that all stories within one movie sum up but this is a movie that's big into figuring things out, like who did this thing to our, our main character. He he figures a lot of stuff out. But then there's a couple outstanding threads that is like those are not only important to us, they're vital for the character. And he doesn't seem curious about it. Hmm. And that seems like a major flaw. It seemed like the writer forgot. 
and that is a that's a problem, but it's not the end of the world. But it's just a very it's a very engaging film. I really mm. liked it. And here's a fun story, uh, that in which uh, I felt like shit. Uh, after the movie, because as I was leaving, I held the door open for uh, this woman who who said, oh, thank you very much. And so we found ourselves, because of the timing, we found ourselves walking next to each other in the hallway. And uh, apparently she decided she wanted to start talking. I tend not to talk to people, unless it's like Amy or, or Aaron or anything like, or people that I know previously. I usually don't talk to anybody at those screenings. Me too. And so, uh, so she immediately said like she goes man who did that music that was really great music and i I thought the so i said what i thought in which i said i said yeah i know i it's i said you know it's it's a little bit bombastic but it actually grew on me all right Mm -hmm. so then she says i even hate repeating it but she's like she goes well bombastic's more of a descriptor but and just and then like moves on to this other thing as if to say like it's like that's not a really a criticism like she, she like undercut me a little bit, like my word choice, but the, it is bombastic. And mm-hmm. what I'm saying is like nothing about that film that I just described seems like it would have bombastic music. So it's counterintuitive, but it grew on me. Right. And, and, and that <laughs> when you say it like that, that should be implied. <laughs> yeah. Cause I said, I said like, it's bombastic, but it grew on me, mm-hmm. you know? And I guess, but it wasn't. And so she's like, well, it's more of a description. And maybe she thought that was the, me saying that was like a dig at her, me disagreeing with her or something like that. But in that, but she just said the way she just kind of rushed through it, it seemed very passive aggressive. And, uh, I wanted to murder her (laughs) so much. I wanted to just flames on the side side of of my heaving, (laughs) heaving. And it's, and part of me is like, Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Cause I opened the door for her. Wouldn't it be great to take her head and smash it in a door? (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? And it's just, and in that moment, I'm like, man, we critics are the fucking worst. Like, this is why people hate us. Okay. So Um, I felt terrible after that, uh, because she made me feel, uh, an inch tall. Um, I realized we were accidentally, I accidentally recorded this in stereo. I've never done that before. I'm not sure if it sounds any different. Uh, Let us know. All right. (laughs) I usually don't record in stereo. I'm not sure what this will sound like. Oh boy. Um, anyway, uh, so that's almost on here. I'm going to talk registering, right? Uh, yeah, looks like it. All right. I am talking and yeah, I see my, uh, voice (laughs) registering. So everything's recording. Let us know if this sounds weird. We should start the show with that. I am talking. (laughs) Um, I'm going to talk about, okay. Here's a movie. I was excited to see it. I'd heard good things, but I wasn't prepared for how much I would love it. Okay. Uh, it is the documentary Citizen Four. Oh, yes, yes. It's unbelievable how good this movie is. Well, I've heard it has like just a crazy amount of access, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. And okay. that's, it was pretty much this woman, Laura Poitras, I think is the director. And the, the, um, the reporter, writer, Glenn Greenwald mm-hmm. were like the two people that Edward Snowden clued in like there were yeah. the people who knew to go to hong kong and meet him in the hotel room so it's mostly like the most of it is just the first week of him in the hotel room telling them things before like most of the footage is before we all knew what was yeah. happening um you know it's not until like day three or four that glenn greenwald like publishes the first story and people yeah. start to realize what's going on and that's that's almost halfway through the movie um it's it's fascinating it's not 
um, it's not unbiased, but it's not. So it's probably on his, it's mostly on his side, I would assume. It, it's, it's, it's almost more a movie. I mean, Citizen Four was the code name he gave himself when he was contacting Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald yeah. before he, when he was sending encrypted emails, before he went to Hong Kong, before he, you know, before people knew that he was Edward Snowden. Yeah. Um, they just knew him as Citizen Four. So it's named after him because it's more about him, not about his life. Um, I mean, he talks about certain things about his life, but it's about, it's just, a looking pointing the camera at him and uh having him explain to you what he did and why he did what he did yeah um and it's it's incredibly captivating um i mean he's a much more uh sort of uh interesting in an everyman type of way a much more interesting person than you would think i guess mm-hmm. i guess i just I think of like uh, this guy works because of the job he had i thought he might be more of an introvert and i think he is a bit of an introvert but he's incredibly well-spoken. Yeah. Um, and he also, I think very much to his credit and to the credit of his cause, um, almost never comes across as like a paranoic or anything like, or an activist or anything like that. Yeah. He comes across as a regular guy. And I think that's very important because, um, it really helps you to understand what he did and how, how much of a risk he took and how much yeah. he gave up. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a part in the movie late in the movie when Laura Poitras cuts in, um, president Obama saying, um, in a press conference, no, I don't think he's a Patriot. And after what we've seen for at that point, an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half, yeah. it's galling that president Obama would say that like yeah. this guy, we're so on this guy's side and we so, believe that this guy uh and you know it's it's fitting that the two people that he um contacted laura poitras and glenn greenwald are people who write about american politics and have clear belief systems that are um they clearly care very deeply about america Mm -hmm. but neither one of them lives in america she lives in berlin and he lives in rio de janeiro yeah partially because it's almost impossible for them to do what they do while living on American soil. Hmm. And that's so upsetting. Yeah. And so you see this guy in Hong Kong and, and I think, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's, if you don't know the story, it's easy to say like, uh, how American is this guy? He ran away. He ran away to our communist enemies, you know, from Hong Kong to Russia where he, yeah. where he lives now, where he is at the end of the film. Um, but it gives you such a, it's such a clear, I mean, there's so much information in the movie, but yet, partially because he's just so good at talking. Yeah. Uh, it, you understand it all and you understand him as a person and you really start to like Edward Snowden, but it also has this feeling of being, I joked on Twitter that it's, um, that it's, uh, a better Jason Bourne movie than the, the Jer- Jeremy Renner one was, yeah. um, because it does have this sort of globe trotting, uh, feel, you know, cause there's his stuff in Hong Kong and then later in Russia, but also there's, you know, reporters, from uh you know the guardian sends someone it's originally just these two glenn greenwald and laura poitras and they send another guy from the guardian sends a guy from uh from london and then you know there's parts of it in that take place in belgium and it's it, it like it, you know rio de janeiro it, it jumps all over the place uh and it has even though it almost entirely takes place in this one hotel room very nondescript Mm-hmm. um you know uh hotel room in uh in hong kong it has this feeling of like a globe trotting spy thriller uh and it's 
I just, it's the kind of, if it is propaganda, which I don't know if it fits that entirely, um, because of the way that, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, is it, 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 is it propaganda if it, if it's just about one person's opinion about their right, own actions? That's, yeah, I guess what I mean is that it, it, it could be seen as propaganda because it, you know, it doesn't give, it doesn't give the NSA a lot of time yeah, to give true. their point of view. But if it is propaganda, it's the kind that I like, which is, it's not hysterical at all. It's yeah. not um, deceitful. It's not Michael Moorish about, uh, it, you know, being manipulative. It's right. um, giving you giving you facts in a sort of clear-eyed, straightforward way. And uh, it's it's an unbelievably inspiring movie. And I'm kind of... I'm in awe of this person, Edward Snowden, in a way that I, I, and I, I, I had a lot of respect for what, what he did because I think my politics tend to line up with his. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm on his side in a way that I couldn't have imagined myself being, uh, before it, it's incredible. Yeah. It sounds really great. And it's, and it's interesting politically. Um, he pissed off an interesting blend of people. <laughs> because it wasn't this isn't an instance where like you know democrats were angry and republicans were happy or vice versa it was an instance where some certainly it makes sense why the administration would be unhappy because like it makes them look bad and then at the same time if if you're like a pro very much a pro military not necessarily patriotic but like not to imply that they're not but at the same time like the two don't necessarily go together. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a pro military Republican, you'd say, Oh, he's a traitor and all that. But at the same time, there are certain Republicans, uh, maybe even some tea party Republicans that would say, Oh no, this is a good example of like what, a, what somebody does to stand up against their government, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it is interesting the way yeah. I, in a way it's, and I don't know necessarily, I don't even really know what I feel about it because it brings up questions of like, you know, it's almost like a conscientious objector. And if you feel like your country is doing something not merely wrong, but something that's completely against what the company, what the company, oh, that should, that should speak volumes. There you go. Um, What the country uh, (laughs) was founded on, then it's just like, it's, it is a patriotic act. But then like one can make the argument that, well, what if he, what if the information he gave actually put Americans in danger elsewhere in the country or something like that. And then like, and so I literally don't know. I think I probably fall in line more that I'm in, that I'm in favor with him of him doing what but he, he did, talks but, about that. Yeah. He talks about, he's like, look, I'm going to give you guys everything that I have, but I picked you guys in particular because I want to trust you. I want to remove my bias and I want to trust you to reveal the information that you think is important to reveal. Yeah. Um, and he's talked specifically about, there are things in here that could put people in danger. Okay. Um, and that, that's why he didn't, he, you know, this guy's incredibly smart and incredibly capable of a lot of things, but he knew where his expertise wasn't. And that's why he picked journalists that he respects, um, to a certain extent because of that, uh, to, to take that out of his hands. Um, but, uh, the, the, the main thing that he, that he, that is his point of view that I don't think is partisan in any way, but that, and he makes this point a couple of times in the movie that the invasion of privacy is the same ultimately as taking away freedom of speech. Because when we know we're being watched, Oh yeah. We self censor 
and it limits the amount of conversations and the amount of information we're 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 willing to give up and to yeah. give across and and to uh to express uh and so yeah that's that's what this really boils down to for him is that this is um that the freedom of speech is an essential issue mm-hmm. and invasions of privacy create a an atmosphere that discourages freedom of speech um even if it doesn't actually legislate against it yeah um but the other <laughs> i'll say one more thing before we move on the other thing that really um Stuck out to me. I, I compared it to Jason Bourne, but the other movie I thought of a lot was Enemy of the State because hmm. because of the work this guy does, you learn things that maybe you didn't know that they can ways people can spy on you that you didn't know because um, he's talking. Well, that's why about, I keep my blind shut, David. Right, but you he's know, talking about you know. Sorry. Right now we're recording on a laptop. Someone could be there's a camera on this. The camera's not on as far as I know, yeah. but someone could be recording this with video and audio because this is on the internet right now. There's nothing that you know. That could happen. But he also talks about in the hotel room, he unplugs the phone because it's a phone with a computer and a speakerphone. And as long as it's plugged into a network, someone could um, access the computer in the phone and hot mic it so the speakerphone is, without you even knowing, they could be listening to anything that's being said, you know, that's being picked up by that phone. Well, this here's the thing. Uh, because I don't don't matter. Uh, I feel like I'm. I feel like my insignificance is a is a is a defense against things. But yeah. So what you're saying is, at the very least, I should put a, a piece of tape over my uh, computer uh, camera. Uh, yeah, I guess. And because uh, I do such horrible things in front of that computer, <laughs> I don't so. even want to know. Um, all right, what's uh, what's next for you? Next for me is oh shoot, I believe her name is Jennifer Kent. Uh, her film, The Babadook. Oh, I've heard nothing but great things. I loved it. Did you watch it at home or in a theater? I watched it in a theater, okay. which I would recommend people do if you have the opportunity. Yeah, I have. IFC sent me like an, a screener link to really? watch. But I'm, I'm, I was thinking like, I want to get a chance. I didn't get it. I missed it. It was at the Downtown Independent. Is that where you saw it? Or no, I saw it. Family? It, it has... Uh, uh, it has expanded. I saw it at oh, okay. the Limley Theater in Encino. Oh wow! Yeah, I've been there in forever. Yeah, I don't. I went there twice in a week. It's very strange <laughs> the way that works. But um, yeah, uh, I don't want to speak much about it because I predict I will be talking about it in a few months because uh, I love it that much. Okay. Um, and it is visually marvelous. It is everything that I personally love in a horror film, which is it's using the trappings of of horror and fear and uh, the thriller aspect to, to explore themes about uh, just uh, like a person's emotional state. Um, and the idea that maybe this thing does exist. Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe if it does exist, the only reason that it does is because of, uh, the way this person feels like perhaps their feeling was so strong that this thing, that it actually has manifested itself physically. Uh-huh. It's, and so that's just the script. I think it's a brilliant script. Um, there are, you know, I'm a big fan of like a payoff that you didn't even know was a payoff. Like you didn't know you were being set up for this thing. And then when it happens, you have this thought of like, Oh, that's so fucking perfect. Like it's, <laughs> you get somehow angry uh, about it because, uh, you feel like you've been wasting your life, but uh, the acting, especially, I'd say, is on the part of Essie uh, Davis. I think her name is the the lead actress. She's marvelous, and I believe she actually is nominated for 
Best Actress for the Online Film Critics Society. Okay. As well she should be. It is a wonderful performance. That uh, society knows what's going on. So I've heard. I, I meant to ask you what your what your personal ballot was. Um, but, I don't uh, okay. Um, but yeah, and then I don't remember Noah Wiseman, I think. Okay. Uh, I might be wrong on the last name, but uh, her son is wonderful. Because, and I feel bad just saying like, oh, wonderful, uh, fantastic, stuff like that. Uh, so I'll get a little bit more specific, but again, I don't want to go into too much detail. Um, yeah, her her character, she's a mother, a single mother, and her son is a handful, so she's tired. And what is her day job? She works at a nursing home. So she is caring for people all day long and then goes home and cares for her son. And her performance is just tired and seems to get more and more tired over the, over the course of the film. And she gets agitated. And that's when, and this is when the performance of the kid plays into this because he has to be a specific type of heightened and annoying. Like he has to bother us, the audience. We need to see life from her perspective completely. And so when he screams, we need to feel it. So that when she finally snaps at him, we feel like, oh, yeah, I probably would, too. <laughs> um, but then what's fascinating is that halfway through the film, uh, and I won't say what brings it on because nothing really does. It's just sort of uh, sort of almost like a crossfade. Uh, she's still the lead, but the film starts sympathizing more with him than with her in a way that's completely organic. And it's just such it's so marvelous. I can't say enough good things about it. Okay. Um, I, uh, this is not a new movie. Um, I went to the Regent Theater, which is in Westwood, mm -hmm. uh, to see a screening of 1954's There's No Business Like Show Business. Oh, all right. This is part of the um, Landmark Theaters. Regent is a Landmark Theater. Mm. Has a series called the, um, the Anniversary Classic Series or Classic Anniversary Series. I can't remember. Um, so basically... This is 2004 or 2014. Mm -hmm. So they'll be showing movies basically that came out in years that ended in four or nine because oh, okay. these are like anniversaries. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next one, if you're listening to this, um, uh, is The Pink Panther, which they're doing uh, December 20th, which is a Saturday, I think. And they're doing it in the morning at yes. the Regent Theater with uh, Robert Wagner in person. That's the oh, other nice. thing. There's a person, there's a someone, they do a Q&A with every one of these as well. So I saw There's No Business Like Show Business with um, Mitzi Gaynor, mm -hmm. who I guess she must be, She I, I can only imagine she must be intentionally retired because even though she's 83, there's no reason this woman shouldn't still be acting. Mm. She's so full of life and so hilarious that the Q&A, which they did first, I don't know if that's, I, I think they usually do them after in this case mm -hmm. and in like as in most Q&As, but I think for, I think, Mitzi Gaynor, for her own reasons, wanted to do a Q&A first. So it was film critic Stephen Farber and uh, Mitzi Gaynor. Stephen Farber barely got a word in because she mm -hmm. just like told stories from her life that were fantastic. Um, she's still uh, a little bit bawdy. She told stories about uh, Marilyn Monroe is in There's No Business Like Show Business. And she had... Uh, so she was listing up the cast. She was like, oh, it was such a great time with Heather Merman and Donald O'Connor and Johnny Ray and some big blousy blonde. Um, <laughs> and then she was like, my waist was smaller than hers and I had better legs. Um, <laughs> and then she also claimed that when she was 18 years old, her measurements were 40, 21, 40, which I don't think is physically possible <laughs> without surgery. Um, 
but uh, this is or this it's is, physically possible before a surgery right. to uh, uh, restore your back. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but this is the kind of conversation she had. She also yeah. talked about um, Marilyn Monroe was always late. She eventually came around to saying very good things about Marilyn Monroe's work ethic and when she had a dance number, how much she would mm-hmm. like stay late and work on with the choreographer and stuff like that. But she had a tendency to be late for things, and so uh, apparently Ethel Merman would uh, repeatedly say. Uh, where's the blonde for Christ's sakes? Excuse me, God. Um, <laughs> and then at one point, Johnny Ray said, where the fuck is Marilyn? And 83 year old Mitzi Gaynor said, where the fuck is Marilyn in front of yeah. everyone, which was fun. But then she said that was the first time she'd heard someone say fucking public. Hmm. <laughs> um, she's like 22 in the movie or whatever. Huh. Um, but I mean, the movie, uh, I, the movie is good too. It was, this wasn't just about the Q and a, but yeah. this is a big part of it. Mitzi Gaynor's a delight. So if she's not retired and someone's looking to cast an 83 year old woman who is, uh, I mean, she walks a little slower. She probably can't cut a rug like she does in the, in her movies yeah. when she's in her twenties. But, uh, someone should cast Mitzi Gaynor in something because she is, uh, a spitfire. Yeah. Yeah. Full, full of piss and vinegar. Is that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the movie itself, um, was, it's a, it t- tells a story of a vaudeville family. Um, both the parents and the three kids all grow up in vaudeville and it takes place over the, it takes place over like 25, 30 years as they, they grow up. Um, and it's kind of a melodrama that were the stakes. It has the, um, what I refer to as like the entourage syndrome where it's like, Oh no, there's a crisis. Oh good. Here's the solution. Like yeah, almost yeah. on top of one another. Um, and then at the end it actually, you know, does you know a falling out sort of splits the family apart for the end and they spoilers they come back together for one big glass number uh uh, at the end of the movie um so dramatically kind of low stakes but the musical numbers are uh gorgeous Mm -hmm. um there's one with donald o'connor whom i love you know him from singing the rain right um singing a song um i don't remember the name of the song but the main like repeated uh line is uh a man chases a girl until she catches him uh she's kind of it's kind of cute yeah um but it's sort of a fantasy sequence type thing where he's at this resort uh in miami and he's dancing around these fountains that have these um statues like these women who are supposed to be like greek like muses type things in statue form and they're actual statues that he's dancing around and then it follows him through some fountains and then in my memory, at least without cutting, as it comes back, you realize um, that the statues, uh, you realize just before it happens that they're no longer statues, they're women painted as the statues, and then they all come to life and dance with him for a while. Hmm. It's really cool. That's neat. Um, and yeah, there's all kinds of uh, great stuff like that. So yeah, there's no business like show business. It was a, it was a fun time. Do you think they, I mean, obviously they don't make musicals that often anymore, but Movies like that, um, I feel like they just w- wouldn't make them anymore. Yeah, I don't. Which, which, because it's not merely, it's not merely a musical. It's also a celebration of that type of thing, a celebration right. of performance on top of that. And it was, if you look at like the trailer from the era, it's advertised as Irving Berlin's. It's not directed by Irving Berlin, but it's yeah. Irving Berlin's. There's no business like show business because it yeah. featured all of his songs. That was the, that was the big selling point yeah. was that it's, uh, you know, performers, uh, that you love singing and perform and dancing to Irving Berlin songs. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think there's an equivalent to that today. There's mama Mia. 
uh yeah maybe that's maybe that's uh yeah i guess all right so that's what we saw i am gonna here's what i'm gonna do okay um i'm gonna run through the other movies that i saw if we get any flack i'm gonna edit this point <laughs> this part out okay uh because here's the thing i don't want to sound like i'm kowtowing to publicists because if i see a movie based on a you know uh press screening or whatever and i don't like it I'll be brutally honest oh, sure. in my movie review, Absolutely. but in all other ways, as a part of that, like give and take, I want to be respectful of publicists in the studios and in other ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Uh, um, so, uh, I'm, I'm going to run through the other movies that I've seen. I don't know if any of them, I, I don't think any of them are embargoed at this point, but I just feel overly cautious at the t- this time of year. Um, especially with the, what happened with Girls with Dragon Tattoo a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember. Oh yes. That, yes. uh, was it David Denby who like, uh, brazenly published his review before the embargo date I think so. and, uh, brought down the wrath of Sony pictures on him. <laughs> um, well, now Sony pictures. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Karma. <laughs> you mess with David Denby, you get the horns. Maybe he did um, it. That's probably true. Um, so here we go. I saw Tim Burton's Big Eyes, um, which you'll be seeing in a few days, yeah. right? Uh, and it's, I think it's more good than bad. It has a lot of Tim Burton charms to it. Um, Bruno Dubonnel's, um cinematography is spot on for uh, the sort of Tim, Bar- Tim Burton, um, you know, sunny uh 50s americana uh presentation um but it overall it it, the movie feels like it's unfinished or it feels it feels like it needs some tightening up it has some tonal shifts you know towards the end it has a sequence where it becomes a pretty broad comedy in a way that really works as a broad like it's very funny um you know uh i mean Christoph Waltz is a like award, you know, Oscar winning actor, but yeah. he's hilarious. Um, and he sells this comedy sequence very well, but it also just feels weird <laughs> compared to what we've been seeing the whole yeah, time. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not, it's not perfect, but it has, uh, it has its, it has its charms. Um, I saw Rupert Wyatt's the gambler, which is a remake of the 1974 James Conn vehicle, the mm-hmm. gambler. I can't remember who directed that one. Um, and this is a movie, this is the first of two movies I'll be talking about in the next few minutes where I, I think I said this about Calvary. Um, I get the flaws. I understand what the flaws are, mm-hmm. but something about it speaks to me. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, we talked about, uh, last year we talked about, um, the critic Jordan Hoffman and his review of inside Lewin Davis and his interpretation of it as a story about grief. Yeah. Um, the gambler starts with Mark Wahlberg's character at his grandfather's deathbed Hmm. and it never specifically comes out and says that his behavior the rest of the movie is because he's grieving his grandfather. His father wasn't in the picture. His grandfather is the father figure in his life. Uh, It never comes out and says that he's being self-destructive to the point of possibly being suicidal for the entire movie because, uh, he just lost, uh, his grandfather, possibly Hmm. the closest man in his life. Um, but that hangs over the whole movie. And I think, um, interpreting it that way made his, makes his behavior, which is often just, uh, he just makes a lot of, the character makes a lot of ridiculously poor choices in the movie, but it makes his behavior a little bit sympathetic when you interpret it that way. Hmm. Uh, and it also, I give it, I give the movie points for having a fantastic soundtrack. So many good songs 
from so many different eras. It has a, a Rodriguez, you know, the Searching for Sugarman guy. Oh, okay. A Rodriguez song, a Pope song, an M83 song. It's like all over the map, but it somehow works. Um, and great supporting performances. Um, uh, particularly, you know, John Goodman, um, who's, yeah, I mean, he's not in the movie. Is I'm not sure that he'll quite... I think he's in the movie a bit too much to qualify for the best cameo yeah. um, thing for uh, for the BPs, um, but it's close to that. It's a it's a small but very important role, uh, and I yeah I would I would recommend seeing the Gambler. I understand its flaws, but I'd recommend it. Okay. Um, next uh, next up is the Hobbit: The Battle of Five Armies, which is the best of the three Hobbit movies, mostly because I feel like it sets its sights a little lower. It mostly goes for the cheap thrills of being, um, I, I mean, I, I, they say that the battle sequence is only 45 minutes of the two and a half hours. It feels like it's more than half of the movie, uh, that the battle sequence goes on. And does it get monotonous though? Uh, no, I mean, he's telling a lot of little stories. Okay. I, I get this personally, you know, did you watch that, uh, someone cut together every death in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Did you see that? It's like six no. and a half. It's six and a half minutes. Um, and you can kind of see the nature of the film changing where, and nature of the series changing in the Lord of the Rings, where the, the fellowship of the rings deaths are like up close hand to hand combat and by, you know, uh, by, um, what the Pelinor fields or whatever is what it is. You've just got ghost pirates sweeping through everyone (laughs) and, uh, it, and, and so it becomes a little less personal as in that, you see the Lord of the Rings trilogy become a little less personal. Yeah. And I have some of that same problem with the Hobbit thing. That so many of the people, it's like, it's like, uh, oh, wow, uh, Evangeline Lilly is doing some really acrobatic things alongside that CGI, CGI orc. Yeah. You, you know, you don't get that give and take. Even if it was a person in a mocap suit um, on the set, I don't know if it was or not. But it you lose something, mm. you know, when you lose a sense of danger um, when it's Evangeline Lilly or Orlando Bloom or whoever, um, Richard Armitage is the other guy who plays Thor yeah. and Oakenshield. Um, like they're all doing awesome things, but the stakes seem a little low because it's clear that they're, um, in, in combat with cartoons yeah. <laughs> essentially, but there are some awesome and inventive set pieces. Um, that again, this is what I'm talking about with like the cheap thrills, you know? Um, you know, there's, uh, like a there's like a chasm between two um like peaks and there's a tower on one of them and the tower falls down and creates a bridge between the two peaks and orlando bloom and one of the in this orc have this extended battle battle on this tower but stones keep falling out of the tower so this tower that they're fighting on is crumbling into this huh. chasm as they're fighting yeah. it's a, it's really cool um uh, but it's also i don't think Tolkien wrote that. <laughs> yeah, know? probably not. <laughs> so that, that that's kind of the movie in a nutshell. It just has like big emotional moments um and exciting fights and it you know it it, it goes by I mean it's the shortest it's the shortest of any Peter Jackson Tolkien movie uh at two and a half hours. It's um and it goes by pretty quickly. Uh, like I said, it's the best of the three, but um I don't know. I can't say too many nice things about this uh trilogy. Yeah. I did see a uh sort of a fan trailer cutting together footage from the first film, the second film, and then sequences from the trailer of the third mm-hmm. and put it together. And basically kind of the trailer is, is predicated on this idea of imagine if he only made 
one movie yeah. called The Hobbit. Here's a three and a half trailer of what that might look like. And you watch it and you're like, I want to see this movie so bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, that would have been. And of course, it's only a matter of time before somebody, once the third film comes out on, on video, um, it's only a matter of time before somebody cuts those together into one three hour movie that I think will probably be pretty great. Yeah, could be good. Could be good. I don't um, know. Yeah, because but I mean, I would imagine that Evangeline Lilly won't be in it. <laughs> pro- uh, probably not. <laughs> Uh, and I, I like her. I've been rewatching Lost, um, and I I think uh, I've been enjoying her more <laughs> uh, the second time through. How could you not? Um, um, anyway, we're not here to talk. I can talk about Lost all day. But uh, and finally, I want to talk about um, a movie called Cake. Okay. That just got a uh, Jennifer Jennifer Aniston just got nominated for a SAG award. Yeah. Um, the movie's catching a lot of flack, I think, among the people who the the few reviews I have read okay. have not been kind. I know very little about it. Um, it's Jennifer Aniston plays a woman. I mean, her backstory gets teased out over the course of the movie, but she has scars on her face and body, and she is in chronic pain. She attends a chronic pain uh, support group. She goes to physical therapy with Mamie Gummer. Mm-hmm. Um, Movie Gummer is playing a different character. Uh, <laughs> um, That'd be weird if she. <laughs> yeah, I'm Meryl Streep's daughter. I'll be your physical <laughs> therapist. Um, and I, it's sort of like I was talking about with the gambler. I, I totally get that some of this seems a little on the nose, amateurish, um, maybe too broad in some of its. Uh, some of her emotional breakthroughs that she gets to. But I think this is just a personal thing, but I think the metaphor of chronic pain, well, chronic pain is a metaphor for depression Mm -hmm. is really on the nose, but also really fitting, at least in my experience. I mean, I think depression affects different people differently, but um, this is essentially a story about a woman who is depressed and that is manifested in chronic pain yeah. and she self-medicates with painkillers. Uh, and I think, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get too personal, but I think like that, that, uh, it felt very relatable to me, mm-hmm. the sort of pain she was in and her ways of dealing with it by being, um, sardonically and sometimes cruelly detached, uh, and self-medicating is stuff that I have. I don't think I have, I, I've, I don't want to go into I struggle with certain things. Um, yeah. uh, and it felt very, uh, uh, it, it, it resonated with me in a lot of ways, even though I'm enough of a, you know, seasoned and sophisticated film viewer to understand that a lot of it is corny. But at uh, the same but it time, worked. yeah, I mean, you know, Great uh, cast. the nature of movies, again, you and I've talked about like, there is no, there's no vacuum. For anybody, Mm -hmm. critic or otherwise, everyone will always bring their own experiences to a film. And so in this case, uh, it could be somebody dealing with any any number of different types of diseases, including depression. And and if if there's an inherent truth for people that are going through that, Mm -hmm. you know, if they see that and they say everything about that is correct. Mm-hmm. And it really resonates with me. Then, you know, an argument could be made that maybe that's the audience for it. Maybe right. it wasn't meant for people who can't, you know, who can't really relate to it personally. And I do think that maybe probably the best films are the ones that, though being specific, 
you can still relate to the main character. But I don't think that's a prerequisite for a movie to be good. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, I think uh, I think that's perfectly fine. It's it goes back to, you know, one of the to me, one of the most insightful things that I ever saw uh, when it came to what criticism is. A lot of people talk about um, the character of Anton Ego and Ratatouille, and I do love that character, and I love the way he's written. But what I really enjoy is that when he when he takes his first bite of Ratatouille, uh, it do, it does like this little flashback of mm-hmm. him as a kid, and he's scraped his knee, and he's like crying, standing in the doorway, and his mother's like, oh, and she hugs him, and then like she she like bandages his knee or elbow or, or whatever it was, and then sits him at a table and she cooks ratatouille and puts it in front of him and he and he eats it and smiles and it makes him feel a little bit better and then it's and then we you know flash back you know flash forward into the present and that's the thing like the reason he loves this food he can intellectualize it if he wants mm-hmm. the reason that he likes it is because it reminds him of this personal thing right and i feel like as a critic i feel like you have a responsibility to acknowledge like this touched me on this level and i think it was trying to and it it, it accomplished that very well said so um uh and i'll say uh great cast um jennifer anderson is fantastic um i'm gonna even so many people in the movie want to miss like chris messina plays her ex-husband I um, like him. um what's the name of the woman who was nominated for supporting actress oscar for Babel? uh it's adriana brazzo or something like that uh, something like that, yes. Yeah, she's I was about great. To say, Rinko Kikuchi? <laughs> no, uh, that's, that's the other one. Yeah, there were two nominations yeah. for supporting. Rinko Kikuchi was also supporting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize. Uh, yes, Adriana Barazzo is fantastic. Um, I mentioned Mamie Gummer. Felicity Hoffman is Felicity Huffman mm-hmm. is great. Um, and then William H Macy has one scene, and I have to imagine it's because Felicity Huffman's in the movie. They're like, yeah. "Hey, you did this scene." Um, Anna Kendrick, uh, it plays another woman in the support group. Um, Sam Worthington, who I'm usually not a big fan of, uh, yeah. is is good. Uh, and I, yeah, I feel like I'm even missing someone. There's so many who, people who directed in the movie. Um, I'm, it's like Daniel Barnes. He's known for some not good things. Okay. Uh, he's known for. Um, like mugging and you know, <laughs> no. that kind of thing. I think it was called Won't Back Down with uh, Viola Davis. Yeah, that's right. And then he did, uh, before that, he did Beastly. Do you remember Beastly? The Beauty and the Beast <laughs> thing with the that's the most right. gorgeous beast in yeah, the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he did those movies. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's what I've seen. Uh, I don't have any TV to talk about this week. Yeah, neither do I. I wish that I had... Uh... I wish that I'd uh, gotten a chance to see more. I did watch all three extended edition Lord of the Rings oh. uh, in one day, which I, of course, I did several years ago. And uh, we watched a friend's Blu-rays. And what we didn't know when we started it is that the Blu-rays are even longer. Really? There's each new one, scenes? Each one is about 10 minutes longer than the DVD. So there's new scenes you hadn't seen before? or I think what a lot of it was, like, especially in... More the- slow motion? <laughs> Yeah, they really, they really, uh, <laughs> they went all saving Christmas on it. All, all they did was add two seconds to every shot. No, um, <laughs> the, um, the, I think what it is, is I don't think there are any new scenes. I think there were existing scenes that they added stuff to. Like, for example, in Return of the King, there's a, a, a very short thing that I barely even remember of orcs fighting one another in Mordor. This, you really see it. Like, you see them fighting, you see how it escalates. Now, none of our main characters are there, so it makes sense why they would cut that out. But 
the idea is this is one of the reasons why Sam and Frodo can pass through pass through this sort of castle or this fortress thing undetected is because all the orcs are, are dead at each by each other's hands. Right. In the and that's the thing in the original certainly in the theatrical film and then in, even in the extended, it's like it, we won't wonder about it if we don't. You know, we're not going to ask that question if it's not presented to us. Whereas in this one, uh, that battle is extended and and I realized and in watching I'm like oh, I know I can see why this was cut um, and so uh, but yeah it was still fun watching all of them it took a solid 13 13 and a half hours wow. um, but uh, but it was uh, it was a great deal of fun and uh, you know I felt like I uh, like I bonded with uh, the people that were there so well there are about six or seven of us that's why we do this absolutely it's about bonding all right thanks for listening we'll get you next time bye bye